Hi, I'm Zhang Mei, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China. Each episode, we visit a different destination in China with a special guest. And when we say a destination, it can be as big as a province, or sometimes as small as a village, or sometimes it may be a field of study, or simply a way of life. Today, our guest is Pulitzer Prize winning writer. National Geographic Fellow and professional walker Paul Salovec. Now, a few words about Paul. Paul was born in California, raised in Mexico, and in his career as a writer, has traveled to more than fifty countries. In addition to being a prize-winning writer, Paul has also worked as a commercial fisherman in the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean, and mined gold in Australia. And managed a ranch in Mexico. <laughs> Just a range of diversity there. Now that brings us to today with Paul on year nine of his twenty-four thousand-mile foot journey, tracing the ancient human migration from Africa across the globe. He started in January two thousand thirteen in Ethiopia, and is making his way across the world to the southern tip of South America. This odyssey. As it is very commonly referred to, is the Out of Eden walk. I actually personally had the pleasure of joining Paul for a three-day segment of his journey in my hometown province of Yunnan, late 2021. I got a very small glimpse of what a day in the life of Paul looks like, but I am still completely in awe of Paul doing this. Day in and day out, and more importantly, beyond walking, Paul is a prolific writer, photographer, videographer, storyteller, that brings people from the world along with him on this walk, and he does all of this with a very small backpack. How he does is the question we want to get into today. So thank you, Paul, for joining us. Great to be with you, May. Good to see you again. To tell us, where are you? I mean, physically, right now, where are you dialing in from?、Uh, I'm in Shanghai at the moment.、Uh, I've had to pause the walk temporarily、uh, because of the Omicron surge here in China. So,、um, basically, under lockdown until travel restrictions raised to return to the trail, which was back in Sichuan. Yeah,、oh, I can't believe how much the Omicron sort of has messed up everyone's agenda. And sorry to hear that. Mm-hmm. But seeing your face, my mind just travels all the way back、uh, to those beautiful, beautiful mountains that we were walking through, and I remember you were telling me stories under those scorching sun, but really quite cold actually still, while we were gaining altitude from the Yangtze River base, right? And that was a few hours out of Lijiang, and you were telling me a story about Lee Dixon and shrimping. But I didn't have a pen, so I was like, "How do I write down the story?" But eventually, I was so grateful. Kendra, my colleague, actually tracked down the story—a quote from you from BBC. And here I'm going to quote you: "I was driving to the Gulf of Mexico in 1985 to try to find work on a shrimp boat. My motorbike was secondhand, and when it broke down in Roswell, New Mexico, I had to stop and earn some money to get it fixed. I was a butcher's assistant during the day, and I worked 
at a donut shop at night. Mm -hmm. I rented a room in a woman's home for $25 a week. And she had worked at the Saturday Evening Post during its heyday in New York during the 1950s and 60s. She noticed I was reading beat up paperbacks and she got me a job at the local newspaper where she had been the city editor. I owe my career to Lee Dixon and this random encounter. And that's what's so great about nomadism. Now this quote, Paul, this is so wild. Please unpack the story for us. Now, how did you become a fisherman, a butcher's assistant, and then a Pulitzer Prize winning writer? This is a very wide range, as we said. Yeah. You know, you talked about this project, Walk Across the World, and basically we've talked on the trail about using the body as the main instrument for gathering information, right? Not just your mind, but also your body call it kind of somatic. That's a nice word from my biology days, somatic storytelling, somatic story gathering, where you go out and you join people in their daily life, including their daily work, as a way to kind of get insights into their hopes and dreams and disappointments uh, into their lives. And without knowing it, I sort of been preparing for the walk all these years by doing that myself as a young person. I was like a lot of teenagers, restless, surly, generally unhappy, you know, dissatisfied with parental generation was telling me. And so I struck out sort of on my own at a fairly early age, doing all sorts of manual labor jobs, as you mentioned, probably reading too many books of fiction and poetry about people who had done similar things in the past, right? So the connection that I make with what I'm doing today is that like back then, there seemingly was no plan. There seemingly was no map. There seemingly was no even destination, but deep down, there of course is. And, you know, deep down, we all sort of have yearnings and curiosity and very common human longings that push us along the pathways of our life. For better, for worse, mine has been just much more predicated on serendipity, predicated at least superficially on chance, but you know, there is no real chance too, right? You sort of make chance happen. Mm. This notion of fate and destiny, you're not passive on this journey, at least you shouldn't be. But it strikes me very different. When I hear your story about your earlier sort of wanderings and searching, I could totally relate to what you were saying, right? There was no specific plan, but subconsciously you were moving along this journey of search for yourself. But Out of Eden Walk is, it seemed on the contrary to me, Out of Eden Walk is very thought through. It's very planned. Yes and no. Maybe that's an illusion that comes across to the readers of the audience. You know, I do sometimes get questions from readers saying, is there some, like, like a little command central post where there's like a global map with little red, you know, lights flashing about here's Paul, here's the next destination. And the answer is no. And you lived it. You saw how our plans, such as they were, were subordinate to whatever was happening that day, like taking a shortcut up the side of a mountain and losing a camera. I'm saying this because it's, it's a beautiful example. It's a beautiful metaphor for, yes, you can sort of have a general idea of sort of where you're going. And it's maybe a good idea to have a general idea. But if you are so obsessed with kind of incrementally plotting every step of your journey, whether it's a real journey or a metaphorical one, my experience is that you lose out on so much. 
and I'm not romanticizing, you know, kind of nomadism because that's been done. You know, there, there are writers and storytellers who kind of think that, you know, pastoral peoples or true nomads have a leg up on the rest of us. I kind of take those with a grain of salt. I sort of read that kind of literature when I was a teenager. But now as a, you know, an adult, I can see, you know, that's sort of a romantic version of wishful thinking. That's kind of projection. We're all on these journeys, right? You can look at your career as a journey. You can look at your life as a journey. You can look at your relationships as a journey. If you over control them too much in the service of efficiency or maximum reward or whatever, you will lose out. You will lose out on the incredible world of possibility that is presented by accident. And the metaphor that I come back to again and again is this notion of being alert. And on your journey, if you're alert, like a hunter, right? The people I'm following out of Africa were hunters and gatherers. And they couldn't sleepwalk through life because if they did, they starved to death or they got eaten by a predator. Mm -hmm. When you move across the road on foot, you kind of replicate a little bit that mentality of being a hunter. And so by being switched on, by being attentive to the interior world of your heart, but also the physical world around you, the world presents you with opportunities that you might miss if you are so focused on a career path or university path mm. or a project path. You miss these potential side trails that could be even better than the destination that you're headed. Mm. That is very interesting. I mean, I have a whole list of questions, which precisely like you were saying, like that was the path that I was planning, but this conversation is taking me to a different direction. So I'm going to jump in there. Otherwise I'll lose that train of thought. So as you were saying this, one thing that came to my mind was a conversation a friend once mentioned saying, sometimes you have a vision about where you might be a decade from today or two decades from today, or there's the vision of the self or the vision of the out of Eden walk in the end. So you, you see it in your mind's eye, mm -hmm. as long as that vision is sort of your guiding light mm -hmm. every day, you move a little bit forward towards that without dogmatically laying out to specific work plans to get there. Do you? feel that way? Did you visualize yourself when you were 20 that you would be a successful writer when you were 40? And when you were 40, did you see yourself as a walker in your late 50s or whatever? <laughs> I'm curious. In my case, no. I had no bloody clue what I wanted to do. When I was a commercial fisherman, as you mentioned, I loved commercial fishing and I was in the world of commercial fishing fully, 110%. I wasn't thinking about becoming a novelist or inventing a new cure for cancer or anything else. I was a fisherman. And you know what? It made me a pretty damn good fisherman. So when I would go on a boat, I would become a valued member of that crew. The same goes for working at a gold mine. The same goes for picking grapes. The same goes for installing walk-in freezers. The same goes for selling art on street corners. The same goes for washing dishes in a restaurant. The same goes for driving tractors. I can list off probably a couple dozen jobs that I've done. And 
I was pretty good at most, if not all of them, because I was doing the best I could in that world of that work. In this case, we're talking about the rubric of work. But what I started realizing is that by, you know, you mentioned this anecdote of a motorcycle breaking down on a trip to go to a fishing boat and staying with a woman who luckily, at that point in my life, I was in my early 20s, introduced me to this idea of storytelling, of story. What is story? You know, I was reading books. I was, you know, consuming story through movies, through song, through sitting over some beers at a bar with buddies working on a gas pipeline. All of that is story. But I thought, wow, but there's, there's the power of written words that Lee Dixon, this, you know, retired writer for a magazine that was kind of popular, what, I don't even remember, like 60s maybe? I, I don't know when the Saturday Evening Post kind of went out of business. Kind of like from the golden era of magazines in North America. She affected me with this idea by chance of the power of story. So all these jobs that I'd done and all these kind of different skills that I'd acquired and become good at, suddenly I saw their utility in enhancing meaning in my life through story. They weren't just an eclectic quest for experience. I honestly can say that that really wasn't what I was, that's like a typical, often a common young person's quest is kind of go out and gather experience. And, you know, maybe at the beginning when I was a teenager, that might've been it, but certainly that didn't last very long because when you work in a, a gold mine, the illusions of kind of how hard it is to work in a gold mine get stripped all that kind of romantic veneer away. You either do the work, you don't do the work. And if you don't do the work, you're out on your, there's no kind of like middle ground. You have to dedicate yourself entirely to be successful at that job. And so I found that I was just curious about other people's lives. Mm -hmm. I found that, that the work they did was a big part of their identity across cultures and languages, whether you're a very good auto mechanic or a very good shrimp boat captain in West Australia, that's part of what you hold in your heart about who you are. And if you want to access people's interior life, you work with them. You work with them in the fields, you work on boats, you do whatever. And just a few weeks ago, I was picking tea with a group of women from Sichuan. I spent a couple days picking tea with them. And guess what happens when you work with people? They talk. Unless they're, you know, like on an electron microscope or something, if they're scientists or technicians that requires full concentration, most of us gab. We yap. We exchange stories. You know how it is. And so I probably learned about the lives of those women through spending a couple of days working with them with baskets on my back, throwing, you know, little tips of tea branches in. They're physically showing me how to use the thumbnail to harvest a tea tip and how, how kind of incompetent I was at the beginning. And by the end of two days, just slowly starting to kind of take baby steps to get better. That gave me insights into kind of who they were and where they were in their world than had I sat them down in a studio or in a newspaper office or whatever and interviewed them, you know, formally for hours. So that's become kind of a one technique of this project is to walk through people's lives, to kind of stop and do a little work with them chat with them, just shoot the breeze, you know, and see what's on their minds and use these connecting points to weave a tapestry of stories that just gets longer and longer and longer. You know, it's kind of a, a braid. It's a braid of stories. Yeah. I love it. I could visualize the thumb and the index finger and clipping those 
young, tender tea leaves. And those conversations are fantastic. As you were saying, like whatever job you did, shrimping or gold mining, you did it a hundred percent. I wasn't going there like as a writer saying, I'm going to go do experiential reporting, immersive reporting. I wasn't even a reporter back then. It was like, no, right. I was feeding myself. So, you know, I had to pay bills and everything else. But I found that the application of, of attentiveness, of attention to any work made you good at that work. And it made you feel good about yourself. And it made you feel good among the people who were working with you. And that is translated you know, even into my writing, when I went in to start covering the world. It's just a useful lesson. I've encountered numerous young people who ask me, how do you find that dedication? How do you find that passion? And sometimes I feel like I'm the same way when I'm working, like I don't hear my kids. I don't hear my husband. I don't hear anybody. And that sense that focusing, I think of it, maybe we are lucky that you have that dedication or a hundred percent in the moment doing whatever job you're doing. What advice would you give to young people who dabble at something and says, oh, this is not my thing. Let me move on to another thing. Let me move on to another thing. That's okay too. You know, I think what I'm cautious about when I speak to young people is that don't use my model because there's no way you could hope to, and I wouldn't want to wish my trajectory on anyone. It's a very roundabout way. I mean, go to Columbia University, get the master's. That's a form of intensity and focus that I've never had to do, right? And also the dabbling is also not bad. That can be a different kind of a journey. What I'm careful about though, I've noticed like when young people, when I talk to a lot of students on this project, we have a large education mission. It's not just storytelling, is this notion of passion is bandied about an awful lot to the point where it makes me suspicious of the word. <laughs> you know, let's face it. I mean, like if you have to be passionate about, you know, your hamburger, you have to be passionate about, you know, human rights or whatever. It's like, you know, give me a break. We can't always be switched on to passion every single thing we turn our attention to. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. It's a marketing ploy. No, finding your passion may be dabbling and you don't have to be passionate about everything. Maybe you don't even have to be passionate about the thing you love, paradoxically. You can take a low-key approach, a diffuse approach, and that's just the way you interact with the world. And that gives your life meaning. And I think this notion, I don't know where it's come from, because I've been out of the States since 2012, a long time. But the way certain ideals enter into the kind of popular culture and the language of success or teaching... You know, if you start hearing the same word over and over a lot and being applied kind of indiscriminately, it's maybe a good reason to look at it a little bit skeptically because it pigeonholes ideals. I've got to be passionate. Why am I not passionate? Oh, you know, woe is me. I'm not passionate. I mean, I don't trust it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, go walk with a Turkish shepherd across the steppes of Eastern Anatolia. And if you spend a day with that woman or man, Nothing happens. Nothing happens. Passion is not visible. But guess what? Most centered, they can be as content as the most successful mogul, right? Because they've taken a pathway where their rewards are not only different, but their approach to rewards is different. It's not this kind of very almost monomaniacal focus on destination or cause effect 
well, shepherds meander. That's what you do when you're a shepherd. You're looking for grass. And, you know, you go over this hill and okay, nothing. And you throw a few rocks around at birds. You go down the other hill, you go into the ravine and, you know, a sheep is giving you trouble. And it, it's sort of these seemingly kind of random things, but they're not. They're partly random, but they're also informed by the shepherd or shepherdess's knowledge of landscape. And what I say that that shepherd, that pastoralist is like passionate about sheep. No, in some cases, they don't even like doing their work, right? But they do it in a way that's instructive in terms of inhabiting what you're doing. Whatever it is you're doing, inhabit it. Live there. Because if you're not, and you're always thinking about your passion lies elsewhere, or you're, I just think that there's a potential for getting a little lost in this quest that's kind of being enforced from the outside. It's not really your quest. It's society telling you, you need to be passionate. Mm -hmm. Some of the most wise people I've met and most centered people I've met, it would be very difficult to know what their passions are, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who, you know, is pushing skinny cows around the mountains of Mexico, right? Who by kind of Western standards would be economically sort of disadvantaged and uneducated and whose approach to their work, it seems almost more pragmatic than passionate, but they're deeply wise. I'm talking to you about specifically an old man who was kind of my adoptive grandfather, a Mexican cowboy who taught me a lot of lessons without teaching me lessons. I don't mean to sound like Cohen-like or Zen-like, but the, some of the most amazing epiphanies for me have been moments when I didn't think I was learning. I wasn't prepped to kind of study and, you know, analyze or extract lessons, but they percolate inside of me. And, I, and that old guy, he's passed away now for quite a while. He lived to be 99. It took him like a week to read through the local newspaper, which is fine because it only came about once a week. <laughs> but <laughs> he taught me so much just about the way he was, right? Just about his approach to the task at hand, right? What is the task at hand? If the task at hand is walking across continents, you apply yourself to that. If the task at hand is to salvage a relationship, you apply yourself to that. If the task at hand is to finish a story on deadline, apply yourself. I know it sounds almost banal and self-evident, but maybe we lose track of it in the kind of bigger scheme that there has to be this kind of shining goal at the end. Mm. People often ask me, God, aren't you tired? You're nine plus years in, you've walked, you know, something like 12 or 13,000 miles, whatever that is in kilometers, 20,000 plus. Aren't you kind of bored and tired? And like, when you think about Tierra del Fuego, the kind of destination of my project at the tip of South America, because I'm following ancient migrations out of Africa through Eurasia to the last corner of the continents, one of them that our ancestors kind of discovered on foot all those millennia back in the Stone Age. The honest answer is, are you kidding me? And I think we had this conversation on our walk through Yunnan. Are you joking? Like, you think I'm thinking about Argentina and Chile right now? I don't know where I'll be next Tuesday. I have no clue where, you know. <laughs> it is sort of a, in the moment, kind of a model for getting things done. Mm. Yeah. Now I want to dig into the Out of Eden walk. How did it start? And what is keeping you focused and centered nine years on already, mm -hmm. nine more years, maybe, I don't know. So, you know, I had a long career covering contemporary events for American media, 
based mainly in Africa. And so I'd covered wars. I was a war correspondent for a long time. I covered environment. I, I wrote about culture. I wrote about public health, you name it. And it was at a deeply rewarding time of my life. I learned a lot. I was watching history in the making. It was an extraordinary privilege. And I was privileged to be working with people who were extremely smart and compassionate human beings who helped me do it well, my various editors. But after a while, a couple things were happening. The American media ecosystem was undergoing dramatic turmoil and being transformed by the digital revolution. And anybody who looked up from their feet a little bit as they walked along the trail of their daily lives saw that, you know, there was a reckoning looming. So I thought, okay, you know, I can continue to do this. I can continue to travel the globe and, you know, I could be almost anywhere. Or is it time for a change? Is it time to kind of push myself? And so one of the great beauties of what I was doing is that you could have literary aspirations with never really having to live up to them because you were producing so much work every day that you could justify, you know, never fulfilling those goals. And I thought, you know, it's time maybe that I do want to try to become a better writer. And one of the things that I noticed in my work is that if I, the more time I spent with a subject or with people who inhabited the stories of our day, whether they're climate change or, or cultural survival or urban to rural migration or rural to urban, whatever, there was like this direct ratio of time invested, reward reaped, both in the quality of the work, but also as a life experience. You felt like you truly were understanding what was going on, as opposed to like a stone skipping across a lake and just superficially writing stories mm -hmm. that were only 750 to 1,000 words long, and they had to have a top and a middle and an end, and you had this sort of information. And so I thought, okay, I think I've sort of explored that part of the narrative world enough. I've learned a lot. It's time to take it somewhere else. And so I thought, let me get off of the airplanes that I was flying all over the place, often as a fireman going to fires, and moving more slowly among the stories of our day, moving to them in a very radically different way by slowing down and walking to them. And that proved to be a pretty cool idea. I mean, it kind of was like an, you know, almost an intellectual exercise at first. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm a scientist by education, my degree's in biology, and I, I love genetics. I love uh, history. I kind of took classes in archaeology. Let me take all of my kind of undergraduate academic knowledge and package it with my practical experience as a traveling storyteller, often in kind of situations in extremists, right, in very kind of difficult environments, and combine them into kind of a hybrid way to tell stories that, that hasn't been done in a while. That was the way we used to tell stories, the traveling bards of the Greeks, right? Um, West Africa, they have griots who would travel from village to village singing songs, and they were traveling nation sharers as well as entertainers. And I thought, let me go back to that kind of peripatetic, old, ambulatory, walking version of storytelling that we've been doing for thousands of years and leave the airplanes and the trains and, you know, the four stories a day deadlines that, that young people have to do today leave that behind. And I had the luxury of having the connections and had built up the social capital and the credibility, et cetera, to be able to do this, right? And so I left that and I started walking between Africa to South America, kind of conceptually following the ancient dispersal pathways of humans out of Africa, the, these hunter gatherers that I told you about. 
yeah. using that as my kind of intellectual map, but really just collecting stories as they come and trying to connect these stories together. And so I thought the connectivity part is what's really different about this project. I'm not just parachuting into a story about civil conflict and then parachuting into another story about, you know, an epidemic and then another story about whatever language. I'm actually connecting them through my feet and through my body and moving slowly at the pace of a human walk to absorb information at the pace of a walk. That's the difference of what I'm doing now between what I used to do. And I found that is a crucial difference. Think of it as a human body, May. Think of the different organs, the heart, the liver, you know, the big toe, or the nose. I was doing nose stories and heart stories and liver stories and big toe stories really well. But what I was missing was this tissue called integument. Integumentary tissue that holds the body together, that makes it all work together in harmony so we can do this and breathe and, and etc. The Out of Eden Walk provided the integument for a cosmos of storytelling that before had not been connected, that had been put in these tidy little boxes that Western media use to separate stories so you can digest them. And it's literally a little box, but it's also conceptually a box. And with the walk broken open, that artificial box to say, hey, you know what? This box is bullshit because an education story is connected to a war story or a health story is connected to gender issues, right? So that actually takes me straight to one of the quotes that I found about you that I love. The quote says, I don't try to compete with big guys like the New York Times who go in, cover stories very thoroughly and then leave. I stay. I seek out quiet points of the world where there is no news. Usually that means something is happening there, but no one is interested yet. Yeah. This quote summed up almost precisely what you were saying. And I, I love it because the way I like traveling, I always tell the wild China travelers, don't try to hit all the best spots, slow down, take an entire week dedicate that to walk where Paul just walked and you are going to see the slice of China so much more in depth. I have to tell you, I often come up against a lot of resistance from most people because there is a predominant sense of FOMO. You're right. You're running up against the same issues that I am in terms of like where you devote your energy and where do you devote your life? If you're going to take a break and go travel to Yunnan, do you necessarily want to go to Dali? And I love Dali. Don't get me wrong. I have amazing warm memories of walking along Erhai. And I've had these conversations with my Yunnanese walking partners, Yang Wendo. He's saying, well, don't you want to go to this place? I mean, it's like famous, like the Grand Canyon, right? Like you're really going to walk this close to the Grand Canyon and not look. I'm saying, Wendo, if we come to the Grand Canyon, we will look into the Grand Canyon. If the trail leads us away from the Grand Canyon, we will go to somewhere else. But I can guarantee you Again, I come back to this thing. If you're awake, you will find revelations as powerful or maybe even more powerful than the Grand Canyon, two kilometers away from the edge of the Grand Canyon. And so what's lovely to see is that Yang Wendo, he started mauling this. He sort of like was a little bit kind of, you know, saying, well, this guy's a bit crazy. And like, you know, I don't, I'm a proud buy from, you know, this amazing landscape. They had converted him. And he's like saying, you know what? He looked back, he walked through the mountains of Sichuan that nobody from the outside, very few Chinese from elsewhere in China, walked through this corner of Sichuan. And when we last saw each other, he said, I'm transformed. 
the walk has transformed the way I look at the world. It is not a series of high points, mountains that I have to climb. I'm not going to go climb the seven highest mountains in the world and bag them, right? You can. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, God bless you and, and you know, stay, stay safe. And I couldn't do it. But those valleys and trails and villages and farms and fields and forests and rivers and glaciers and, and car parks in between the mountain peaks, are those somehow not as real? Is the mountain peaks, are they somehow less valuable real estate as the mountain peaks? Are they somehow not as authentic as the mountain peak? I think by setting up these constructs of what it is valuable to go to automatically closes off an entire world into silences that are not silent at all. You just have to go there and listen. And believe me, you'll get an earful. And I'm sort of borrowing this concept from another writer, Reiser Kapuscinski, very famous Polish writer, who noted this. He covered the world for PAP, the Polish news agency, back in the starting in the 50s. And he said, if there was a place where there was no news, I went there because I knew news was happening. It's just that nobody in my business had the sense or the imagination to go there because we're all rushing to the same place. We'll have 41 news people at one event. And there'll be something that might be more important happening two blocks away. But because of the consensus trance, the thing that we all agree, are you going to this thing? Yeah, I'm going to this thing. Are you going to this thing? Yeah, I'm going to this thing. We kind of cut off the world of possibility. That's, that's really the walk. I mean, that's kind of a little description of the walk. Because every day, you and I would get up. We'd have a chop. We'd discuss more or less where we think we could reach, right? And we'd even maybe call ahead saying, you know, is there a guest house there, someplace we can stay? But there was no guarantee we'd reach it, you know? And if we didn't, most of the time that's okay. Or if we got there early and we wanted to go on, most of the time that's okay. So I come back to this thing. It's good to have waypoints. It's good to have kind of general compass points where you want to go. Walk towards sunrise is my advice. But if you get too obsessed with micromanaging in between, then I would say you're not really on a journey. You're doing something else. I admire you to feel so centered, to be able to pursue the quiet news that nobody else heard. They didn't even know they want to hear. It is so hard to create awareness for the quiet news, barring your saying. And in some ways, I'm saying this in sort of the writing aspect, but I'm also thinking in the business that I've been in, I have been shouting, you slow down, you don't have to visit the tourist sites, you go to this village, spend time with them, it's incredibly beautiful. The stories are as real and more interesting in some ways to me. But people are going to go, why would I want to do that? So coming back to the FOMO, when your story, your quiet news is out, the readership may not be a million. That's right. How do you center yourself without feeling like, am I missing out? Like, am I less successful mm -hmm. on the more common scale of measurement? Goes kind of towards intention. You know, what are your intentions with what you want to do with your life? And as a storyteller, my business is communication, right? Is to share stories so that, you know, thank heavens, there's some people who will want to read or, or see the stories that I'm producing or that my walking partner is increasingly 
are producing. And that's another thing we can talk about is that it's not just a solo journey anymore. It's this medley of voices now, which is just far richer than it was at the beginning. I have maybe the luxury, it's a difficult luxury, sounds kind of a contradiction, but it's a luxury to have aspirations to produce art at the best of moments. And that allows me to be compassionate with myself to say, you know, yes, I want my stories to be read. Yes, maybe I wish more people would read my stories, of course, but it's okay if they don't because my task is to infuse as much meaning as I can from my life into my stories so that whoever they do touch, the impact is big. It's not just a 15 second Instagram or TikTok video. And I'm not saying just because I love TikTok. TikTok is happy. You know, people criticize this media, but there's joy in it. And it's human communication, right? It may not be sitting around a campfire and speaking for six hours to a cowboy in Mexico, but you don't want to always sit around a campfire every day. Take it from me. <laughs> Nothing against the media or the platform. It's more what quality do you want out of it? And so I'm kind of in this interesting balancing act where I sort of want audience, of course. And, you know, my supporters, my partners, National Geographic and others, they want audience too. You know, that's sort of part of the deal is, you know, we support your journey. We want to draw attention to the journey because if you don't, then sort of what's the point. But at the same time, if I'm always doing this, if I'm always looking over my shoulder to say, hey, are, are you with me to my audience? What happens, May? I'm going to walk ahead and fall off a cliff because then I will have lost creative agency. I will be handing my agency as a creator to an audience that's waiting and that, to be frank, doesn't really know what it wants, at least in my medium, it doesn't. Let me give you another metaphor, the Silk Road. So for 2,200 years, people were traveling on the Silk Roads. It was really wasn't a road, right? It was these big trade corridors. And what did the Silk Road give, say, the Venetians? Well, it gave them macaroni. It gave them gunpowder. It gave them tempered steel, all these practical things that people in Venice wanted. You know, if they could, if they had an app, if they have the Silk Road app, they would order it and say, you know, I need you know, a big box of macaroni, but I don't want to be a macaroni guy. I have never wanted to be a macaroni guy. I'm the guy that goes to Cathay and comes back with a little box that you don't know what's in it, that I just happened to find because I went to Cathay. And I'm going to give it to you and I say, May, you're sitting in Venice. Here's my little box that I brought from Cathay. And you're going to say, what is this? This is a macaroni it's not really useful. I don't know how it's practical. How does it apply to my life? I'm saying, no, it doesn't do any of that, but open it up. And you open it up and your face does this. Eyes wide open and looking into this box and big question mark, what, what? This is what I'm after. I'm after giving you as a reader something you had no idea you wanted. And that's great storytelling does. Because if you just deliver what you think people want, that's called focus group marketing. That's not called storytelling, right? And I'm not disparaging focus group marketing. Different purposes. Yeah, different ideas. But I'm old enough now to have it really crystal clear in my head. I am not a focus group marketer. I'm not an Instagram influencer. Because honestly, 
I've got to say this in a very careful way because I dearly love my audiences and, and I live and breathe by their hopes and their interest and their enthusiasm. It's like a blast of oxygen. But at a certain level, I can't really be too concerned with what they want. I could totally just follow on that philosophical because I've wanted to ask all these questions. Now, getting back on the ground, looking back, I spent three days with you in Yunnan. It's a land that I'm very familiar with. So I have certain impressions. Yeah. I'm totally curious about your impression. Mm. We didn't really get to talk about it. And particularly you've walked from Ethiopia all the way there. What did you see? A quality of light, daylight, that was both ancient and new. And this sense of walking through the apple orchards south of Lijiang and going and playing around with the ladies who were picking apples and joking with them and trying to pick apples and causing a ruckus and having a great time and leaving with a big bag of apples that was so heavy I could not hope to carry it. It always happens in Yunnan. And feeling and knowing my heart, my passage was not causing the least ripple. The quality of light, I actually saw that in your videos. Uh-huh. I'm using light as just kind of a, a thread to tug on this larger tapestry. Yunnan is one of the most physically exhilarating landscapes I've ever walked through. Yunnan amazingly, counterintuitively, delightfully, awe-inspiringly, hope-inspiringly, but also melancholically, still harbors handmade landscapes. And you know what I mean landscapes that are made by the human hand, where you see the imprint of the hand everywhere from the structure of the houses to the tools that people use to build the houses, to the shapes of the mountains that have been farmed since year one. And their very shape is defined by the human muscle, human hand. It's this very beautiful, benign interaction between humans and nature. And I know that you as a conservationist would take great issue maybe with some of these saying, well, what about all this, you know, biodiversity loss? I, I get it. I get it. But as an aesthetic experience on a purely aesthetic level is one of the most beautiful places I've ever walked. Just breath-stopping. We'd wake up in the morning coming down from the Galigongshan and we would walk through villages that were built of stone amid a cornucopia of different harvests. You know, we can talk about Yunnanese food, but May, the food that sticks in my mind in Yunnan is the fresh produce and the things that were hanging on trees and coming out of the ground. It's there. There's nothing quite like it in all of my walk. It's this cornucopia of fertility. It's just this big, robust, gently sloping, almost kind of like a human shoulder. And people were still moving between these communities, these hamlets, either on foot or on bicycles, some on motor scooters but the roads themselves were scaled to the human body or, or the scale of a horse. And there was just something deeply comforting moving through far Western and Northwestern Yunnan's rural landscapes that it felt like home. And the thing that, that I think that I, I can intellectualize it, but I think there's some truth in it is it's simply because it was built to scale of the human body still. It wasn't wiped out by cars. It wasn't paved over. It wasn't box stored to death. There wasn't this kind of high efficiency, high profit, high productivity economy that has just encompassed the entire planet now. Parts of Yunnan that I walked through had the enormous privilege of walking through. It's going to be one of the highlights of my life. I was able to see still how we could 
fit into landscape in a way that has a harmonious vibration, an undertone. You know, like in music, there's an overchord, an underchord. There's this underchord in Yunnan, in that part of Yunnan. I can't speak for all of Yunnan, but of like, I couldn't wait to get up and see what lay ahead because I know what lay ahead was not a straight line. The trails move like music. What you just described is the most beautiful, eloquent description of this visceral feeling that I have towards Yunnan that I don't know how to put in words, which you just did. <laughs> and I've always feeling that maybe my private feeling towards Yunnan because that's my hometown. But to hear this coming from you, it took my breath away. Oh, it's a very moving landscape. And it's this interaction between people and land and feeling welcomed by both. I'm writing a story right now, and I use this line, the landscape opened itself the way it does only once when you first set foot in it, right? And, you know, I can go back, and I, if I were crazy, and I would never do this, but I could try to rewalk it, but it wouldn't be the same. It's this moment of discovery that you internalize and you take the landscape inside of your heart. And when you go back, you'll find some other element of it that's equally beautiful, but it won't be the same. It'll be different. You described the deep down in the back of my head, why I was so fascinated and interested in somehow reviving this T-Horse Trail. Mm -hmm. There is this relationship with humans there, with the environment is so well carved out that they fit together really, really beautifully. And in fact, I don't mind what you were saying, even from a conservation perspective, because I think traditionally the communities in Yunnan fit yes. into nature. Yes with all the other moving parts, the wildlife, the biodiversity, the gazillion amount of azaleas and rhododendrons and some those monkeys, whatever, they fit. Yeah. And, yeah. and I wanted somehow to create an opportunity for people who are not as hardcore as you to be able to get on their feet and walk through and experience this magic. My degrees in environmental biology, I care passionately about wild landscapes. I'm deeply disturbed and sobered by the lack of wildlife that I saw on this walk over the last nine years. It really has driven home how much we've really devastated the planet. But in my deepest, deepest hearts, if I had to be pressed and I had a choice between a pure wilderness and an inhabited wilderness, I'll take the inhabited one any day of the week. Because we are part of that. We have always been part of that. And to create a national park where you clear out indigenous people and put it under a bell jar of this kind of romantic Emersonian idea that nature is somehow pure and we're impure, we're sinners. Nature is like, are you joking? Are you kidding me? You've just sterilized that wilderness. I'll take farmers any day. I'll take fishermen any day. Absolutely. What would you say to conservationists who would say, well, if they keep harvesting all the mushrooms, the land will go bare and all the environment will be destroyed. What would you yep. say? I would say, because I've had to be confronted with these issues, and they're not easy issues, you've made a, an amazing productive contribution to trying to resolve these issues, is that we have to find a middle ground. We have to find a middle ground. And I think that's what conservation, modern conservation is now. 
So it's this very difficult question now of making everybody a stakeholder and not just nature, right? There have to be compromises. Yeah. I love it. This is music to my ears. I mean, you've lived it by taking people out and exposing them to these landscapes, whether they're from Manhattan or Kunming, it doesn't matter. And that is part of it. That's our job. That's your and my job. We're doing it a little differently. Our trails are different, but they're running in parallel. What better job can there be than that, right? There are ups and downs, but still, I mean, it's a good direction to be walking. It feels like I'm going opposite direction. You started from environmental biology, and now I'm heading in that direction. <laughs> but all roads lead to Rome, or all roads lead to Beijing, wherever. Everyone go to Instagram at Out of Eden Walk to follow Paul's steps. Yeah. And also you have loyal fans on your Vimeo site as well. Yes, thank you. Well, thanks so much, Paul. Do you have any parting words? The beauty is the scalability of this thing from the space between the neurons firing in your brain, that's the ultimate journey, to walking the world. And I would argue that you don't need to walk the world. You know, if you can get out of your compound in Shanghai and walk around your building, that's a good place to start. There's a world there. I completely agree. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing the wisdom. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the China Travel Podcast, produced by Wild China Travel and hosted by me, Wild China founder Zhang Mei. For every episode, you can find a summary with timestamps and a list of resources on our website, wildchina.com. If you enjoy this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Wild China Travel or me personally at Wild China May. That is M E I. Thank you and see you next time.